We thought we were the exceptions to history, we Americans. History didn't apply to us. We could never fight a bad war. We could never represent the wrong cause. We were Americans. Well, in Vietnam, it proved that we were not an exception to history. That's journalist Neil Sheehan in a clip from the second episode of the Vietnam War. It's easy to look back on the American war in Vietnam and be cynical. I know I feel that way sometimes. We now know that President Lyndon Johnson escalated the war for political reasons. We know that Defense Secretary Robert McNamara embraced statistics that had nothing to do with North Vietnam's will to fight. We know that generals like William Westmoreland blinded themselves to what was really going on in the war, even in their own armies. So of course we look back on the Vietnam War and say that the men who led us into it were thinking only of themselves. But what if that's not true? Or at least, what if it's not the whole story? What if the people who got us involved in Vietnam really believed that they were fighting for freedom? What if they saw Vietnam as the place where we would pay any price and bear any burden? Any burden meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. How does our understanding of the war change if it began as an expression of hope about what America had to offer the world? And if it was idealism that led us into Vietnam, how clearly did Americans see themselves and their values? I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, and you're listening to The American War, a podcast about how America lost its way in Vietnam and how Ken Burns and Lynn Novick are trying to help us find our way back. I'm here with Ken to talk about the second episode of their documentary. It didn't matter to me where it was. I was going to go if my government said we needed to be there. We were probably the last kids of any generation that actually believed our government would never lie to us. So, Ken, I think the thing that surprised me most watching this second episode was hearing people like John Musgrave, who was a Marine, and Jack Todd, who was in the Army, talk about the Vietnam War as if it was an expression of idealism inspired by President Kennedy. I think so many people of my age, I'm 32, think of Vietnam primarily as something they were fighting to get out of, not as a conflict where they had the opportunity to do the right thing or prove that they were men. And from our conversations, I know you had this experience of sort of rooting for the United States to win and be the good guys when you were younger. But for viewers who didn't live through that moment or who didn't personally feel that way, is there something we learn about the war by going back and remembering that before all the cynicism that followed, there was a real idealism and optimism about America's involvement in Vietnam? Absolutely. I think that's a key theme of this. Um, we needed to go back and, uh, you know, as we've been saying over and over again, unpack a lot of stuff. But when Kennedy gets inaugurated, there's a really important moment in American history that happens. It has to do with youth. And it has to do with hope. It seems to be uh, a sense that the 60s are going to be super different than anything else. But it's all, at least in the beginning, represented by trust and hope. And that was invested with this youngest of all elected presidents. Now, the people that talk about him, like Jack Todd and John Musgrave in, in our second episode, are, are just enough older than me that, well, I, I felt the energy and excitement of the Kennedy election and the beginning years of it. I didn't feel it in the same way that these guys had. I was too young to understand that 
I might be motivated in the Manichaean dynamic that Hal Kushner refers to in episode one between the Soviet Union and us, meaning between us good and them bad, that, that what Kennedy would do would put energy on it. He would start the engine, he'd put the car in gear, and that people would go off with that trust. And, and I think what Vietnam, among the many, many things that it did, uh, is that it began to end uh, and erode that trust uh, that we have in the people who occupy uh, 1600 Pen- uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Did it erode our trust in ourselves too, though? I mean, if this well, is where our idealism left us. Yeah, this is this is this is the point I want to make. There's something abstract about the arguments of history, and um, and and they have little bearing on the actual experience of events. And part of what gets uh, kind of fuzzed up uh, in the course of it is that we just focus on the easier dialectics between people or groups or tribes or nations or whatever and forget that the most critical stuff are the inner transformations. And so if you were to consider the two people that you've presented as sort of states evidence A and B of this faith in the system, uh, John Musgrave and Jack Todd, they are going to undergo unbelievable experiences in their lives. Nothing can compare to John Musgrave's. But they are also going to undergo wrenching psychological and emotional changes within their own life that are going to redirect their energies in unbelievably surprising ways. And so I think for us, rather than having an avuncular you know, historian abstractly uh, tell us from the safety of his or her comforting chair in their den what it all means, it's really nice to hear the genuineness of that sincerity uh, and, and trust and hope in these two individuals who, over the course of the subsequent episodes, are going to you know, really have that not only dashed, but are going to have their own sort of mental well-being and sort of psychological stuff rearranged in the process of it. That's what I think is the most interesting part of telling stories. I think this episode made me feel just sort of unsettled because um, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I was obsessed with the Vietnam War as a kid. I got in trouble with my parents because I was a hippie for Halloween one year and was not allowed to carry a make love, not war sign to go trick or treating, which in retrospect was probably a good parenting decision. But I think I had this sense that I knew about the Vietnam War, um, that unusual among people of my generation, I had studied it a lot. I was interested in it. And I think this episode of the movie just made me feel like that was, you know, maybe arrogant or I I was wrong. (laughs) And so... Well, I I don't think that's true. I just think that the assumptions that it's based on are superficial enough that they don't uh, permit the depth of complication to come through. And when that comes through, you can begin to under understand what it might mean to love and trust and do anything include sacrifice your life for your president and um, only to find dot 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 yeah I mean I guess it made me think about how the story that I accepted as sort of a given got codified and I was wondering how you thought it had been established I mean was it nonfiction books? Was it pop culture? I mean, what was it that forged the consensus that I grew up with? I think the consensus got forged less by pop culture than by 
how little we were willing to sort of push back against these things. We just were very willing, regardless of your point of view, to accept some pretty basic superficial traps. And we just realized that you kind of had to disarm all of that. There's fraudulence on all of those things. You know, uh, presumptions about the domino theory and this sort of an automatic knee-jerk, you know, this is wrong. You know, I would just like to offer, as someone who grew up thinking this was the most absurd thing ever, how do we know that the presence of over 600,000 American troops in Vietnam, as well as all the hundreds of thousands of support troops in the oceans and in the bases around there, and covert CIA activities in all the other countries that were supposed to fall, uh, and you know, supporting anti-communist insurgencies and carrying out assassinations and, and uh, doing all this stuff, how do we know that that didn't happen, you know? Uh, And I don't have an answer for that. I liked having my own worldview rocked, just like in the World War II. I had grown up in a family that presumed that the the atom bomb didn't need to be used. And I, you know, got convinced otherwise by a lot of people who might be dead, and I would not have been able to interview them if they were involved for the multi-year event called the invasion of mainland Japan, and that the probable death of seven or eight million more human beings, mostly Japanese, um, was that, uh, was the 250,000 killed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, a trade-off for all those lives that were spared. I don't know how to answer that's higher than my pay grade, but that stuff, you know, Vietnam rocked a lot of that for me, the simplicity of the narrative. I mean, I agree with you about the cultural presumption, but do you think that the way that you and Jeff Ward learned about the war was different from the way that your co-director, Lynn Novick, and your executive producer, Sarah Botstein, who are younger than you and sort of had culture some of their formative experiences, got their ideas about the war? Yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, uh, Jeff was uh, fully an adult, uh, didn't have to worry about the draft because of his, he had contracted uh, polio as a child and uh, would not have been a useful soldier uh, in that regard, thank goodness. And I was younger but felt that I knew everything and the arrogance that, you know, kids and teenagers feel. And Lynn was much younger but felt the vibe of Vietnam. And Sarah was born, you know, essentially when it was all over. So it was something she only acquired retrospectively. So each of us brought a different sensibility into it that I think both probably helped and hindered each of us, each in his or her own way. And, you know, it's probably better for me not to presume any more than I already have or what we've kind of commonly shared in conversations together. Uh, but all of us had to check some baggage. All of us had to have some sense of, of uh, you know, you know, had a sense that we knew what was going on, more so for me than for Lynn. And certainly I, Sarah's absolved of any of that. Whatever she learned, she was taught in school secondarily. Uh, the rest of us did have real-time uh, meaning of the war. But Lynn can also be excused because she was so young from any real formation. But I can't and Jeff can't. And, and I think that's our education has been uh, terrifically important, not just to who we are as filmmakers and how the film turned out, to, but to who we are as human beings. Like Sarah, I was born after the Vietnam War was over, so my way into the conflict was through pop culture. That may seem obvious, but I think it raises an important point. 
the war itself got obscured by artists' responses to it. Even if you were born during the conflict, you might know more about how artists felt about the war than about the war itself. To get to the truth, you have to rewind the tape. And I saw all the Hollywood movies that came out in the late 70s and early 80s, Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter, um, Platoon was a little bit later, Full Metal Jacket. So I sort of, I understood the Hollywood version of the war. That's Ken's co-director, Lynn Novick. She's nine years younger than Ken, so even though she was born in 1962 and lived through the most intense years of the war, she learned about Vietnam in a very different way. I called her to talk about how this very different perspective played a role in the making of the film. The war ended in 75, and I was very interested in it, but I wasn't aware of anything to do with historiography of the war. I just was trying to soak up whatever was readily available. I wasn't really going into a deep dive at all. And the first time I really began to relate to the war on the printed page in years later was reading Dispatches by Michael Hare and then The Bright Shining Lie by Neil Sheehan. And those two just sort of opened up that there was much more complexity to the story than what I had seen in the Hollywood movie or even in the documentaries that had been done. And that started me on a path of doing a lot more reading. So it's interesting that Dispatches, which is so experiential, and A Bright Shining Light, which is just so meticulously constructed, were the books that stuck out to you. I mean, they're kind of interesting companion pieces. Yeah, I, you know, um, when you read Dispatches, you're just really tossed into the deep end of the pool of an experience of Vietnam. It's, it's, it is, there's no explanation of anything. You just you're in it, and it's so subjective, and it it makes so many assumptions about what you already know and what you bring to it. And I was interested to find out when I started working on this film that Dispatches, <clears throat> Michael Hare did a brilliant, brilliant job of distilling down what the Vietnam experience meant for many people, not everybody by any means. But as it turns out, he wasn't really doing what we would now consider journalism. It was a lot of compositing and kind of imagining, and he had a great ear for dialogue, but he wasn't necessarily taking careful notes of everything everybody said. So it doesn't give you, you know, what we would say are sort of facts, but it's it's a feeling of the war that's so powerful. You know, you made The War, which is about the American experience in World War II. Did working on that film change or sort of ground your sense of how American foreign policy worked in the years before Vietnam? I mean, I think in my own research for this, I've been surprised how far back the roots of Vietnam went, and I wondered if that, if making the war sort of ended up laying any groundwork for you. I don't think I could have made this film, or we could have, certainly I don't think I could have, and I'm not sure I won't speak for Ken, but I think for both of us, that film was our, um, getting our training wheels to off to be able to make this film. And it had to do partly with understanding and sort of internalizing America's sense of itself in the world and what we thought our role was and what we thought our um, power could achieve. And uh, it took a long time to unwind that. And so understanding the sort of zeitgeist of American idealism and um, desire to project ourselves around the world, that is very much an outgrowth of what our experience was in the Second World War. But it was also for us, I think, getting to know veterans of that war and understanding what we felt at the beginning of that film was that the Second World War had kind of become 
uh, encrusted in myth and sort of bloodless gallantry. And the realities of the war were so horrendous and so terrible that the best way to honor the sacrifice and the service of the people who went into it, and especially those who died, but really all the soldiers and the country as a whole, was to really embrace and understand and not shy away from looking at what the war was really like. And so, you know, um, having gone through that experience and talked to people and really found ways to ask the right questions to get the answers that were real and honest and authentic about what war is like, that was helpful to begin to tackle Vietnam, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. You mentioned sort of American idealism, and I think one of the things that surprised me about this episode was the extent to which Vietnam came out of idealistic propositions. Was that something that you felt like you knew or believed going into the movie, or was that something that sort of emerged out of the research? That's an extraordinarily important point, because I think it's very easy to assume and sort of impart cynicism and sort of real politics and, you know, self-interest in hindsight. And it was really important for us as filmmakers to really go back and understand what did our leaders think and what were they trying to accomplish. And we have a line in the introduction, we say that the Vietnam War was begun in good faith by decent people. And, you know, however it turned out, I think we think it is important to recognize that the impulse to do something about the spread of communism and to make the world a better place is a big part of what drove us into this problem. Um, how we stayed there and what kept us there is a different set of questions. But there was a very uh, legitimate and serious concern about what was happening to the world, and especially with the nuclear threat and the dangers uh, that communism posed and that nuclear annihilation posed. And, you know, what were we as a country, what was our purpose in the world was to try to help people. Um, and all of that really does play into the decisions made by Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy about what, you know, why we should bother with whatever's going on in Vietnam. So there's a lot of idealism. Also idealism about what we could accomplish as a country. If we really were a force for good, then we would eventually triumph. That is not logical, but that is, I think, part of the mindset that drove us to get involved and to stay involved. So one thing I think I've been wrestling with since seeing this episode is if Vietnam began as an idealistic endeavor, what does that say about John F. Kennedy's vision of public service and American, America's role in the world? I mean, obviously, if Vietnam begins as a good faith in, endeavor, that says something about the war itself. But doesn't it also say something about the sort of the nature of that idealism and whether it shaded over into overconfidence? Indeed. Absolutely. Yes. I Well, I, I think there's... Um, I'm going to think about how to explain what I think about this because it's also very easy to idealize and oversimplify and sort of lionize what John Kennedy represented and how he articulated the vision of America. And then you get roll up your sleeves in the messy business of politics and, you know, insurgency and the ugliness of sort of the real world and it kind of it doesn't really hold up quite so well. And it's possible to say that oversimplifying and idealizing aren't necessarily so helpful when you're trying to 
live in the real world, but it, it also was a time when he gave people something to believe in about ourselves that we lost as a result of the war and what went wrong, or certainly lost for a time. So letting go of those um, ideals or illusions, whichever invincibility, the sense that we could do anything, that we could do no wrong, and that we could accomplish anything we set our mind to, um, that's sort of ingrained in our DNA. And uh, the Vietnam War challenged all of that. For most of my life, I felt like it was clear that the best way to be honest about the Vietnam War was to say that it was bad and that it was clearly wrong for the United States to try to fight it. But watching this documentary made me reconsider. Part of facing what happened to America in Vietnam is acknowledging that we went there because a lot of Americans genuinely thought it was a good and important thing to do. Now the way I think about Vietnam is this. The war wasn't an end run around our ideals. It was a reminder that our ideals can go badly wrong. Next time, we'll talk about episode three and how Ken and Lynn approach telling the story of the war from the perspective of the Vietnamese. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, share with friends and family, and find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know more about Ken, Lynn, or their documentary, go to WashingtonPost.com slash The American War and follow me on Twitter at Alyssa Rosenberg. This podcast is produced by Carol Alderman and Adriana Ucero with art direction from Chris Rucan. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg. This is The American War. If you like The American War, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington, Washington Post. Post.